0: Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We thank the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this, his ministry, and uh, may he be with you and us tonight. There are special guests in the house. We're very excited to have them. I'm gonna introduce uh, them in a second. So much to talk about, so little time. And we are talking tonight, by the way. So uh, first things first, check this out. March 1st, 2014, we're launching that station. We've got some great, great teachers of the word. We have John Dr. John MacArthur, Five Point Calvinist for those of you who think I'm so prejudiced. He'll be teaching. Chuck Smith, Adrian Rogers, um, John Corson, a bunch of different people, plus a bunch of filler information 24-7, no infomercials overnight, just teaching the word of God. And bringing on more and more programming from different people throughout the time. We'll have some great comedy. I've already seen some very humorous stuff. Great quotes from different people coming in throughout. So we really look forward to it. You, if you're part of the ministry, you'll be getting something in the mail about this very soon. And, uh, but we're just letting you know, wherever you are out there in the world, uh, what's happening. Kay, come on up. We have a special guest uh, just to kick us off tonight. Uh, my sister in the Lord, who used to be my sister in the in Mormonism. Uh, Kay Brown is here, and I just want to catch up with you. How are you?
1: I am great. Thank you, Sean.
0: What have you been doing? You have a handsome group down here. What's going on?
1: Well, I t- teach a Bible course. My daughter and I just completed a book. Adley Moore is oh. the other author. It's called Grace Range Christian Bible Course for Seeking Mainstream and Fundamentalist Mormons. Yeah. You gotta say it (laughs) one more time. It's Grace Reigns Christian Bible Course for Seeking Mainstream and Fundamentalist Mormons. Wow. And we wrote it because we have a heart for the lost and we really want to um, present this book so that people, if they want to have Bible studies, you know, groups of people who have come out of Mormonism, have these, it's a course that they can follow. And it, it addresses the main topics that most of us, uh, you know, it gets rid of the fear and by just preaching the truth. And, and, and it filters through the Bible. We feel like we've tried really hard to make sure we're biblically on. And Good. so, yeah, that's where, what where we did. Where can people get it? They can contact us at our email address, Course oh, okay. at gmail.com.
0: Look at yeah. that wonderful graphic up there. Course at gmail.com. Check it out. Kay's a great uh, heart for the Lord and uh, family coming out, has a whole group here that's with her, and uh, just great to see you, my sister.
1: Thank you, my brother. All right, thanks. I appreciate thanks for it being so here. much, very kind of you.
0: You're welcome. Hey, and uh, just, sorry Kay, just wanna let you know, uh, for those of you who have been concerned about Bishop Earl, uh, he just walked in here, it's first time I've seen him. Bishop Earl Erskine and his wife, Carla, came out of uh, the LDS church a number of years, a couple of years ago, and he hosts uh, a show, Mormon X-Files, or Ex-Mormon Files, on TV20, and really does a great job in interviewing people, and he had a, a major uh, heart attack, and uh, was in the hospital laid up, but he just walked in here, and uh, we're really blessed to see him, so we praise God for that. I suppose it's human nature uh, for people of different faiths to promote and honor notable figures who are part of their faith. Uh, Scientologists have Tom Cruise and John Travolta and Muslims have Cat Stevens. (laughs) That's all I could think of. And uh, and Christians proudly uh, uh, give uh, praise and tribute to Tim Tebow. And, you know, we've probably all caught ourselves sort of proudly saying at some point in time in reference to some person of celebrity, well, you know, they're a believer. And it just kind of, it makes you feel good. Well, in light of the biblical message, though, it's interesting where God's truest heroes are the ones who aren't seen. They're the ones behind the scenes, typically. They're the faithful prayer warriors that, you know, those types, those men and women of faith. And uh, so the fleshly practice, this allegiance that we have to our celebrity is really interesting. But some religions do it more openly and aggressively than others. Uh, welcome to Mormonism. Uh, I've told this story before. but When I attended BYU, uh, I, I walked into the Cougar Eat. I think it was Cougar Eat. And uh, there was a girl in our ward just weeping her brains out. And, and I walked up to her and I said, what's going on? And she said, you know, I just, I, I just learned that Robert Redford joined the church. And, uh, and he didn't. It was, he, her tears were based on myth. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, she was so overwhelmed of capturing a celebrity. And and it's really interesting. Uh, I had a guy hand me this past week this Deseret News Weekly Insert. Uh, it's once a week they put the LDS Church News in the, in the, in the uh, newspaper they publish. And having come from the faith, the insert article is truly, it suddenly reflects this, this idea of latching on to celebrity and hailing it. This one happens to be though, it says uh, LDS Church News. Derek, if you can s- focus in on that beauty. And uh, it shows an Olympian. Uh, her name is uh, Noelle Pickus-Pace, probably related to George Pace. I haven't checked that out. But it says, Olympian, faithful member, wife and mother. Ah, uh, you know, just imagine. You're, you're a divorcee in the church, you've got three kids, your husband's a bomb. he's left you, but you're struggling to do your calling the best you can. And you open up your Deseret News and there right in front of you, Olympian. It's not enough just to be a woman with a family. She's an Olympian. She's a faithful member, not just a member. She probably has her temple recommend in that, in that thing. And, and she's a wife and she's a mother. But you know, if, if, if I was gonna adopt that, that kind of attitude that they have, I would probably have to respond to this saying, but she only got the silver. <laughs> okay, we'll be here all night, ladies and gentlemen, all night long. Listen, I'm glad for local heroes who, who uh, medal and things like that, but you know, when we parlay that into worldly fame and stuff, I can understand why uh, uh, antidepressant use is so prevalent in the state when you're under this pressure to be so great and so perfect. All right, about last week. Let's start with Tuesday, the silent show. What the heck was that all about? Or as the old lady who called in said, what the hell's going on? Uh, and we love you, older woman. Uh, it was a statement, pure and simple. That's all it was. You see, the disgrace book pages and blogs and emails were chocked full of literal messages of, of hate, of wanting to lynch and separate. And, and, and so I thought, well, let's see what they'll say about me if I just remain quiet this week and for the entire program. Now I have to admit doing the show was really difficult. Uh, we won't do it ever again. Uh, I wanted so badly to laugh at the guys who called in with their jokes that they, they made me laugh. And I wanted to tell the confused supporters how much we really appreciate them. And uh, what was the result of the experiment? Exactly what we thought. The attackers in the face of an hour long of silence still were able to come up with more attacks. And they said things like, uh, well, at least when he's not speaking, we're not hearing lies And, and, and stuff like that. And so all it proves is when we have an enemy, regardless of what they're doing, we unfortunately are tempted to lash out to them in spite of of anything and everything. And it it was truly disturbing. So uh, that was it. Now we go to Thursday night, the uh, uh, event that we called Inquisition 2014, the Trinity. Uh, We held that event for one reason and one reason only. So I could publicly respond to a number of accusations thrown at me from brothers and sisters in the body. Some of them merited from, because of my inability to articulate my position clearly in the short period of time that we began to discuss it. But that was it, we didn't do it to dissect the issues, nor was it a time to defend my position through scripture or to debate with the accusers. Uh, we gave the accusers uh, who had been assailing the ministry for a number of months and sometimes even years to publicly say what they thought of me for the record and for me to be able to clearly state Uh, what I believe as a means to set the record straight. Uh, Unlike uh, my more refined brothers and sisters in the Lord who present on television or in the media, I am constantly learning and growing from each and every engagement and situation like this. Uh, Someone once said to me when I was a teenager and I'd just gotten out of jail for something that was stupid, but uh, he said, one thing about you, McCraney, is you pay a very high tuition uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the game of life. And I'll always remember him saying that, and it's true, uh, I do. Uh, but amidst it all, we keep trying and we continue to learn who we are in ministry and what we are doing in ministry as a means to uh, reach people and what we're not about. And so this sort of criticism from people who believe I need to take a more professional or refined approach to ministry is kind of falls on deaf ears. Let me, um, let me give you an analogy that might help you understand our method of ministry. And while it can be messy, I think it's the best illustration for growth. And I'm going to do a little drawing here. Derek, I, we didn't practice this. so. Uh, but some of you know I was a stockbroker for 12 or 13 years. And so equities markets, that's where people um, uh, invest money into, in, as a stockbroker into stocks. Those are equities. And you have ownership into a company. Well people will come and they'll wanna invest some money. So let's say someone comes and says, I have $100,000 and I wanna put it into the stock market. So uh, right here, we have the beginning spot. Can you see that? And we have the $100,000 and a conservative investor would say they don't want fluctuation. Uh, One of the best ways to explain the movements of most equity markets is to say that historically speaking, Uh, Growth stocks will constantly fluctuate in an up and down uh, upward trend. Okay, so let's just say that somebody was gonna buy Coca Cola, $100,000 worth of Coca Cola, and this is the starting point right here, and they start to invest, and we have all kinds of ups and downs, and they go and they go and they go and they go, and then we have periods of time. We have the first year, we have the second year, we have the third year, we have the 10th year. And you can see that if you go straight across from the day the stock is bought, you know, year one, as soon as you buy it, your $100,000 could drop to 95. And the person looks at their statement and they freak out. So they have to look at the long view of the fluctuations to see that it is on an upward trend. And after time, you have the reward for the fluctuations, you have the reward for the volatility, you have growth as a result of that volatility, and so just imagine that this is the ministry, and we make mistakes sometimes, and, and our popularity falls, and we do things right sometimes, and the popularity goes up, But it's on an upward trend. We try to correct as we go along. Now, we are assailed sometimes for changing our position. I don't see it as a failure. I see it as something that's good. Now, you can get people who will come and say, I want to get something where the fluctuations are really minimal, and I don't see my principal go down at all. They they have very good, consistent growth, but the, the growth is less than the equities that have over a period of time fluctuated. And so you kind of have to decide what your temperament is. Our temperament in this ministry are, we are seekers of truth. We are gonna go after the truth as it opens up to us. And we had a good friend, Marnita, say uh, uh, a few weeks, or a week ago, if you are the same Christian today that you were five years ago, there's a problem. And there is a problem, you're not growing, you're not maturing, you're not questioning and challenging. We will do that in this ministry. Will we make mistakes? Absolutely. Great mistakes. And we'll cause problems and there'll be backlash. But it's we're not that. We're in it for the growth of, of, of the ministry relative to people's lives, that they are growing in Christ, that they're challenging their preconceived notions, that they look at history, that they see what has been taught to them by their Sunday school teachers and decide how they're gonna react. So having said this, let me say a few things we learned from the Inquisition, and from that we are gonna change from this point forward, hopefully. First, I have no animus toward any of the presenters who attended, nor against anyone who presently will, uh, or in the future will attack the ministry. I choose and will love them, accept them as my brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, barring that they come out and say they don't believe in Christ or something ridiculous like that. But uh, all the uh, 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 differences between us as it goes along, they are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I beg their forgiveness where I have insulted them and injured them. Uh, or or, uh, threaten them in some way with with the things we talk about and teach, we will not, from this point forward, will not respond to any attacks that come from members of the body, any. Um, What I mean by this is we will not engage in criticizing anyone in the body, nor allude to any individual member, ministry, or church that has issue with us. So if someone comes out and says, you know, Sean McCraney is this, we are not gonna on our program ever again use this time to respond, we don't care. We are just gonna go forward and teach what we believe is consistent with Holy Writ and we will discuss practices and doctrines that are abstracted from the individuals or churches involved, but we will refrain from using any references, nuance uh, to the person's identity or the church or the ministry we will however continue to unabashedly teach what we believe is biblically supported without apology so let me sort of wrap this up with a set of passages that we are going to begin to cling to in our ministry and they're found in 1 corinthians chapter eight verses one through three here paul he's been talking about a number of different subjects and he brings up the subject of eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols And so he says in verse one of chapter eight, now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. That's what he says at first. Knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. And if any man thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Uh, So what he's saying is, You know, regarding idols and eating the meat that has been sacrificed to idols as Christians, we all have knowledge on this. We all know about it. We have opinions on it, fine and dandy. But he goes on and says, "'We know that we all have knowledge. "'Knowledge puffs up, but charity, love edifies. "'And if any man thinks that he knows something, "'he knows nothing as he ought to know.'" Meaning if you think the knowledge, like it says in 1 Corinthians 13, that you can have all knowledge. If you have not love, you have nothing. So we are going to try to ensure that the love we have in truth will come out more predominantly than it ever has before. And with that, how about a word of prayer? Father God, we love you and seek you and pray your presence to be with us as uh, thankful for the guests and the friends and uh, people who are here tonight in the studio audience, for those who are watching throughout the world, we're grateful for our staff and our volunteers. Uh, and um, we just pray that you will be with us as we move forward. And uh, the discussion that I have with Brother Rob Bowman, now we pray your spirit will be with us in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I got an email a few weeks ago from a man I'd never met, Rob Bowman, he said he lives in, uh, works for IRR. I'll let him, well, he can talk about Institutes of Religious Research, Research. And uh, he lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He is a theologian. And he said, could he come out and meet and talk? And I said, sure, love it. And I was grateful for it because he's coming to me directly. Let's sit down and talk. Uh, Rob Boma Jr. has been with IR since 2008. He's the director of research. Previously, he served as manager of apologetics and interfaith evangelism for the North American Mission Board. For 10 years, Rob taught graduate courses in apologetics, biblical studies, and religion at Luther Rice University and Biola University. He has also worked with other apologetics and discernment ministries, most notably, the Christian Research Institute, that's CRI, the Atlanta Christians Apologetics Project, and Watchmen Fellowship in Alabama. Rob has spoken at over 100 churches And at some three dozen conferences and debates, he has five years of experience hosting call-in radio talk shows focusing on apologetics, including the nationally famous Bible Answer Man show, Rob Bowman earned an MA in Biblical Studies in Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary in 1981 and completed doctrinal studies, all but the dissertation in apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary. He is currently pursuing the completion of his doctoral dissertation at the South African Theological Seminary. He's the author of over 50 articles in the Christian Research Journal, Moody Monthly, Pastoral Renewal, Mission Frontiers, Journal of Evangelical and Missions has 13 books pertaining to apologetics, religion, and biblical theology, including two winners of the gold medallion award for an unchanging faith in a changing world and faith has its reasons. His most recent books are Putting Jesus in His Place, The Case for the Deity of Christ and has received numerous endorsements from scholars such as Ravi Zacharias and Richard Buckman Uh, and what Mormons believe, my fellow brothers and sisters, welcome Rob Bowman.. Hi
1: there.
0: Hello, sir. How are you? All right. All right, good, good, good. Come on, that was you way, need-
2: way too much information about me. <laughs>
0: really? You deserve it all. Come up close. You're going to have to act like you love me because we're uh, we sat in uh, Mimi's cafe, oh, what the, the cuisine, and uh, for almost five hours yesterday, talking and talking, I'm learning from Rob, and I've learned a lot, and I asked him at a certain point in our conversation, will you come on the show, and will you explain to our audience, with all your knowledge, the Trinity? From, a, from the, the most simple theological premise, and then we can talk about how I fail to measure up to that in
2: my thoughts and ideas, and we'll talk more like that. All right. Well, <clears throat> I appreciate you inviting me to do this. I appreciate your uh, very much your openness to me coming and, and meeting with you. And, and, and I thought it was constructive, and I'm glad to be here. Uh, <clears throat> I'll try to keep this uh, short, but uh, the Trinity is a big subject. So uh, I won't be able to give you uh, even uh, a, a smidgen of, of what there is on the subject. But the Doctrine of Trinity arises from a simple question that comes up when you look at what the New Testament teaches. Because you've got two, if you will, uh, threads of, of uh, teaching in the New Testament that Christians uh, noticed from the very beginning and have thought about and talked about. <clears throat> to keep this really simple, the this first thread is the reaffirmation of the Old Testament's teaching that there's only one God. And you see that reaffirmed throughout the New Testament. There's one God, one Lord, one creator of the universe. Uh, we worship only God. We do not worship any creature. We do not worship anything except the maker of the universe. Uh, Mark 12, 29, Jesus reaffirmed the Shema, the uh, Jewish confession found in Deuteronomy 6:4: the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, And there are many references to this uh, doctrine that there's only one God in the New Testament. The second thread uh, that uh, Christians again noticed as they began reading the New Testament books uh, from the earliest days of Christianity uh, was that there were these references to uh, three uh, called in various uh, places, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Sometimes God, the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit sometimes just God, Christ, and Spirit, but clearly referring w- with these different uh, labels, uh, variations to the same three, uh, whatever they are. And so Christians looked at this material in the New Testament, which they regarded as the Word of God, and they asked themselves, how do we relate the one God to the three referred to as, for example, in Matthew 28:19, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? That is the sum total, the entirety of the reason why the Christians began exploring theologically how best to state these things and developed what is classically known as the doctrine of the Trinity. It was simply a matter of Christians studying the Bible and wanting to understand what God's word said. It had nothing to do whatsoever with wanting to accommodate Christianity to paganism It had nothing whatsoever to do with trying to import Greek philosophy or paganism into Christianity. The threeness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is found throughout the New Testament. There are some 80 passages or more in which the three are mentioned together in a coordinated way that makes it clear that they are all in some important way divine, the source of blessing and and, uh, creation and, and salvation. And so the church, as it looked at these passages in the New Testament, and looked at these two issues of the oneness of God, and the three Father, called Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, were seeking to ex- explicate this in a way that remained faithful to the teaching of the New Testament. That is the entire story, in a nutshell, of where the doctrine of the Trinity comes from. It does not come from any source outside of Christianity. Now, of course, the early church spoke Greek and Latin, and thought in Greek philosophical categories and used Greek philosophical and cultural expressions when they articulated for their own society what the New Testament was saying. Everybody does that. It's not something that can be avoided. It is something that we are still doing today. Because we live many centuries later, we might have to refine our vocabulary or explain it when we use Uh, early uh, church father's language and sort of update the explanation so that people in the 21st century can get it, but it's the same idea. Now, what the early church saw as it read the New Testament, and not just as they read the New Testament, but as they reflected on the story, uh, the experience of the early church that is, is given to us in the New Testament, is that the terms... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, there are various labels that get used. For example, Holy Spirit is also called the paracletos, the helper or the comforter in the Gospel of John. But they, they recognize that there was a, there was a narrative storyline that the New Testament presents. And I'm just gonna give this to you very simply. The, the storyline goes like this. God the Father sent his son, his only son, into the world. This only son is, of course, Jesus Christ. He receives that name, historically, when he is conceived and born, but that's who he is. He is God's son, he is sent into the world from the Father. Jesus lives, dies, rises from the dead. Before he goes back to heaven, he tells his disciples, his apostles, I'm going back to the Father, and I'm going to send, and the Father is going to send in my name, someone else who will be another comforter, another helper, another parakletos is the Greek word. And he's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And he's gonna stay with you. So he's gonna pick up where I leave off. And so then in Acts 2, you see this historically worked out when the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles and the 120 uh, that are gathered uh, together in Jerusalem and the church has its formal beginning in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, this is the biblical New Testament narrative in a nutshell of what God did to bring us salvation. You have the Father sending the Son, the Son going back to the Father, and then the Father and the Son jointly sending the Holy Spirit. Now, as Christians looked at this language, they came to understand something very significant about this. What this meant was that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were already in heaven before any of this started. They didn't have, the Son and the Holy Spirit didn't have a beginning when the Son got sent in the incarnation or when the Holy Spirit got sent at Pentecost. They were already there, but the Father sent someone who was already there in heaven, the Son, into the world. So as Christians reflected on this and looked at the various New Testament passages that talked about Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, they came to understand that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have eternally existed from eternity past, will exist to eternity future as three distinct somethings. And these somethings, as I'm using the term, is a very on purpose general term, but it was really not somethings, but some ones. Because they talk to one another. They love one another. And in fact, Jesus says in John 17, 24, that the father loved him before the foundation of the world. So they had what we would call in modern 21st century English language, a personal relationship before creation, the father and Jesus. Of course, he wasn't called Jesus then, but the father and the son had a personal relationship before creation. And Jesus says, I had glory alongside the father before the world was. And he kind of gave that up to come and humble himself by becoming a mortal human being. And he said in John 17, 5, the same chapter, now, Father, please glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. So they understood from reading the New Testament, and the Gospel of John is especially key here, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relational differences predate the incarnation, predate Pentecost, in fact, predate creation. They are eternal. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three eternal someones, and the church used the term persons to denote what to refer to those three. That's the origin of the doctrine of Trinity in a nutshell. There are many scriptures that we could look at that relate to this. If I could take one more minute, sure, just to give you a taste. Oh, the the handheld? Am I not uh, coming through? Oh, it fell off
0: you. You did the thing I do every week, so don't feel bad here. uh, All right. Put that
2: right up. In. How, how's this? Okay, you need that. All right. All right. Uh, in John chapter one, verses one and two, John says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He or that one, uh, was, that, that the same, in King James, I think it says, was in the beginning with God. The word translated he or that one or the same one is the same word hutos, that is, it's a, Greek word that is used throughout the Gospel of John and other books as well. In fact, something like seven or eight times in John chapter one, in reference to what we would call persons. John the Baptist says, this one was he of whom I said, he existed before me. That one meaning, this one meaning Jesus Christ. So it's not, a, it's not an it. Jesus Christ was before his incarnation, of course, not, go, not known by the name Jesus, but he was someone who existed alongside God, the Father, from eternity, according to John 1, 1, in a personal relationship with him. He is called the word there. And John 1, 2, 3 says, all things came into being through him, through the logos. Now, the same exact language is used in other parts of the New Testament, but instead of referring to this one who existed in the beginning and through whom everything came to be as the word or the logos, it calls him the son. So for example, Hebrews one, two says that it was through the son that God made the world. Colossians chapter one says that it is through God's beloved son, the father's beloved son, that everything was made in, in him, through him, and for him. And it specifically says in verse 12, the beloved son. So the word or the son, both are accurate, existed before creation. We have a problem sometimes in communicating We got a failure to communicate with certain people that hear something wrong. And that is they hear that we're saying that from eternity, there were these three guys, you know, maybe guys with long beards, like the Duck Dynasty guys, right? And they were sitting up in heaven, maybe on a couch or something, and they're three separate beings, uh, sort of co-ruling from eternity. And that is the picture that you would get, for example, if you were familiar with the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in Mormonism, you would think of that them that way, although the Holy Ghost doesn't have a physical body, he has some kind of a body. That's not what we mean when we talk about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three persons. What we mean is that they relate to one another in personal or relationship ways. They know each other, they love each other, they talk to each other, and that they've had this interrelationship since before creation. Well, uh, obviously a lot more that could be said, but I'll I'll stop there and let you uh, ask your questions. Okay,
0: so, First question, Rob, would you say, Rob is also an expert in Mormonism, would you say that the only difference between the Mormon idea of the Godhead and the Christian idea of the Trinity is that the Father was in a body of flesh and bone and that the Mormons described them
2: as the Duck Dynasty? Uh, No, that's not the only difference. Not by a long shot. Uh, In Mormonism, uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and of course that is the preferred term for the third uh, personage, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are three separate beings with three separate histories, and they become gods at three different times, and, and in different ways. So the Father was a mortal man who became a god, Jesus Christ somehow was a god who became a mortal man, And the Holy Ghost, we're not sure what's going on with the Holy Ghost. He's a God somehow, and yet he's never had a physical body, and maybe he never will. Maybe someday he'll be blessed with the opportunity. Mormonism is unprepared to answer that question. But the Father becomes a God evidently long before Jesus Christ, the Son, becomes a God, and we don't know when the Holy Ghost became a God. In fact, in Mormonism, they're not even prepared to say who the Holy Ghost is in relation to the Father and the Son. Is he his brother? Is he, you know, they don't know. Uncle, you know. Uh, So in Christianity, the doctrine of the Trinity says, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed as one God, not three gods, from eternity past. They have always been God together. They have never been separate. They have never, they did not arrive at deity at all, much less at different times. They are one indivisible deity. And yet there are these, within this one God, there are these three distinctions that, for lack of a better word, we refer to as persons.
0: Okay, and uh, Rob, the distinctions, we, we refer to them as persons, or just casually, because that's all we can really understand maybe, but would mind or, or core center of being or something help us better to describe it that way? or Because they are persons, because, I mean,
2: right? Well, in, in, uh, again, the term person has to be used, like we would call angels persons, But most Christians understand angels to be incorporeal, non-physical entities. Again, Mormons have difficulty on that one as well. So, in fact, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses have the same problem. Really cannot conceptualize the idea of a personal agent or personal being as not being embodied. All persons have bodies in Mormonism, and it turns out in Jehovah's Witnesses as well. Uh, Jehovah God in in Jehovah's Witness doctrine has some kind of a so-called spirit body. They do not understand the concept of God classically and biblically as an infinite transcendent being who's not incorporated into some kind of a bodily form, but he can take bodily form to appear to people if he wants to. That's a huge difference. We worship an infinite transcendent God who is not limited in any way by a body, but humbly Lord himself in the person of God the Son to take on bodily form as a human being for our salvation, not to complete his redemption, not to complete his glorification and exaltation, but just for us to save us from our sins.
0: Okay, uh, Council of Constantinople, and I'm, I'm, I'm citing 381, but it could have been the earlier one, but it says this, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible, okay? So I automatically know that, I mean, it refers to one God, the Father Almighty as maker of heaven and earth, but the scripture says that the Son made all things. But before I get to that, that's not my point. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds. Now, what does that mean?
2: Well, what that means uh, is that in the New Testament, we see that the relationship between what theologians call the first person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity was a father-son relationship from eternity past. That it's a, and, and the term should be understood as analog, analogous to human father-son relationships, not identical. The son was not procreated by, you know, through a heavenly mother as in Mormonism but that the relationship between the first and second persons is comparable to the relationship between a father and a son, and that that relationship goes back to eternity. What that means exactly, well, God is in some ways incomprehensible, and defining the doctrine of the Trinity accurately does not mean pretending that we know everything about God, but it does mean affirming what the New Testament says in a way that's coherent and consistent And so the creeds are there making the distinction between Christ as having been the son of God and of the same nature and being as God from eternity, as opposed to being a creature made by God as the first of his works. Again, the issue in the Nicene Creed was Arianism. Arianism taught that Jesus Christ was a second lower-class deity, an inferior God whom the Father had made out of nothing, and therefore was not worthy of the same worship and honor as the father. That is heresy. The church identified that as heresy. I would argue that they were correct to identify it as heresy. That doesn't mean we go kill them. It just means we say this causes a division, and we cannot work together as brothers in a functional way because you have separated yourself from the truth by denying that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so they, they took that stand because they were opposing Arianism that said, and that, that's the language of the creed there is he's begotten, not made. He's begotten by the father. That is, he's been the, the father's son from eternity, not a creature of God.
0: You explained something to me yesterday, which really shocked me actually. And it's the theological idea of how the father, uh, how the son was begotten of the father. And I can't. Uh, really articulate what you said, but will you explain that in a quick theological summary?
2: Well, I do want to avoid uh, getting too technical and as well recognizing the distinction between what the church actually asserted in the creed and the theological explanations that people gave then and may, might give now. What they were saying is what I just said. What As as they reflect on what that means in eternity, some speculation starts uh, arising. And some of the church fathers and theologians since then have talked about uh, the Son having been eternally generated or eternally begotten of the Father, understanding that to mean something happens in eternity that makes the Son be the Son in distinction from the Father. But when you start using that kind of language, you, you break the bounds of human capacity to think about these things because for something to happen in our mindset means it wasn't the case and then it was that was Arius's whole problem Arius the, the Arianism is named after Arius said if the father begat the son then the son wasn't always there and the church said no he's always been there Now, Christians have worked this out, sort of sliced and diced it in slightly different ways that are refinements that we could argue about and fall within the pale of the historic doctrines affirmed in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, but the essence has always been the same, that the Father and the Son have coexisted eternally and as distinct persons that love each other and seek to glorify each other and and honor each other in everything, and that the Son was sent by the Father into the world in order to redeem us. Okay, and so is it heresy
0: for, which is kind of my stance uh, to deny eternal sonship?
2: Um, I would say this, I would make a distinction between what what theologians call something being heterodox, which means it's other than the way orthodox Christianity has classically been defined, and heresy, which is saying you're actually rejecting the essence or the basic point that the doctrine is expressing. There are Christian theologians who have taught that Jesus Christ is the second person in the Trinity, the eternal Logos, who then became flesh, and that he was a person distinct from the Father from all eternity, but they prefer to refer to him in his pre-incarnate glory as the Logos, or the Word, not as the Son. Now, I think this is a mistake because, as I pointed out, Hebrews 1, 2 and Colossians 1, 12 to 16 clearly refer to the pre-incarnate second person as the son. But nevertheless, it's just a semantic issue to, because they're agreeing that he was eternal, that he was someone other than the father, that he was a person in relationship with the father from eternity. So if you rejected the idea of eternal sonship but accepted the idea of the eternal second person, you would still fall within... Classic Orthodox Christianity wouldn't be heresy, but it would be uh, uh, explaining in a way that differs from the way classically Orthodox Christians have defined it. And I would argue you would have some problems with some of these texts in the Bible that I've mentioned.
0: Um, And this isn't a debate, so I won't try to go against the theologian. I wouldn't stand a chance, but I do wanna point out that Dr. John MacArthur uh, denies the eternal sonship, uh, who is a, a scholarly theologian as well as Rob. And so did the, uh, the late, uh, what's his name? Walter Martin. Walter Martin. I who, used to work for
2: Walter Martin, by the way.
0: And Walter yeah. Martin said, no, he was not the son in eternity's past pre-creation. That's my whole point, was that he's the word made flesh. That's where I stood. It was from that that the uh, charges of heresy were coming from. My problem was, admittedly, I said, God manifests himself in many ways. I still believe that he manifests himself in the Word, but that the Word was co-eternal, and the Word is God, and all of those things. But I do believe it is a fleshly manifestation, and that he he uh, that w- by looking at the Word made flesh, we can understand
2: the invisible God. Here's here's where we would uh, would want to you know maybe explore the issues a little bit further, and that is that in Trinitarianism, whether it's Walter Martin's version or the classical version, uh, the the Word is not a manifestation of God, but he is God, and he is a person who's distinct from the Father from all eternity, whereas in, in doctrines that usually, and I'm not putting in the same category, but doctrines that usually refer to the word as one of many manifestations of God, uh, there is no essential threeness, uh, there is no relational uh, distinction between the Father and the word. Uh, he simply, the word is in it, and, uh, and that was one of the things that caused people to be very concerned about some of what you said in previous uh, uh, messages, is that you, you described the word as an it. Uh, you understood John 1, 2 to say that. That is not what it says, as for reasons I've explained briefly. Uh, the word is, is a someone, not a something. It is a someone, not, a, not an it. If the word was an it, it could not be God. Because th- things, its can't be God. God is someone. God's love is, is, is an abstraction, it's not God. Love is, the Bible says God is love, it does not say love is God. The Bible says that God is light, it never says light is God. So that's the distinction. God has many attributes, none of those attributes are God, but God is all of those things. That's the distinction that we need to keep clear.
0: In response to Rob, I wanna point out two things. One is the emphatic polyglot, which is a direct, uh, very good, it's not perfect, but it's a direct translation from the Greek. This is what John 1:1 says in the direct translation, which isn't easy to read, but it says, in a beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the God, and a God was the Word. This was in a beginning with the God. All through it was done, and without it was done not even one that has been done. In it, life was. And so it, there in the literal Greek translation, going back to the 1800s, we have the word described as it. One more example, and then I'll let you qualify, and then we'll open up to calls. Sure. In the Geneva Bible, which was a very reliable Bible, this is how it reads in John 1. In the beginning was the word, W-O-R-D-E, I love that, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The, the, the same. same was in the beginning with God all things were made by it and without it was nothing made that was made now if i had the geneva bible in my house and i was reading about that the john passage translated by guys who were closer to the original language than our scholars are today were describing the logos as an it not a son so can you uh, sure yeah. sure
2: a couple things really quickly the first is that uh, we're actually closer to the uh, ancient Greek language uh, than the people that produced the Geneva Bible because since the Geneva Bible was produced, scholars have been able to read thousands of Greek texts that were not available at the time and to learn Greek, uh, street Greek, regular Greek, uh, ordinary uh, people's Greek from the first century. And so they were, able to, we're able to read it now with more understanding of how Greek, the Greek language worked than the producers of the Geneva Bible, with all due respect to them. The second thing is that uh, older English versions often used impersonal, pro- what we would call impersonal pronouns without impugning the personality of the individual uh, involved, so that, for example, uh, it, they would translate uh, the pronoun referring to the, the, the baby Jesus as it, because the Greek word for child in Greek happens to be neuter in form but it's still baby Jesus, (laughs) it's a person. Uh, The other thing is the emphatic diaglot is not a reliable version of uh, or translation. Uh, It it was produced by a Unitarian who denied that Jesus was God, who denied the deity of Christ in any way, shape or form, uh, and produced the emphatic diaglot uh, with that theological bent in place. Uh, In fact, it's a notorious version that was used for many, many decades uh, by the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, cited there, that the emphatic diaglot in many, many times, including specifically on John 1-1, to justify their understanding of the text. So uh, although course, the emphatic diaglot is not 100% bad because they're, he's trying to follow what the text says uh, from his understanding, it's not a reliable uh, version and no scholar today uh, would cite it as, uh, as such. Okay,
0: we have five, uh, four calls waiting, but quickly, do you accept
2: all the creeds as infallible? No, I don't accept any post-biblical creed as infallible. I think they are fallible yet faithful teachings representing what New Testament teaching was. Okay,
0: is it is the title Trinity required to be considered a saved Christian?
2: No, because you're not saved by pa- passing a theology exam. Thank you. Uh, however, uh, rejecting the doctrine of the Trinity and impugning it Uh, causes a a rift within the body of Christ with believers who are faithfully upholding what Christians of all denominations have upheld for most of the church history. In fact, the the earliest recorded use of the word Trinity comes from the second century. So although the word isn't in the New Testament, Christians were using it before the ink was dried on the New Testament. And final question, do you see,
0: at least in the case of working with the LDS, the ability to clear the table of man-made terms so that we can not be accused of following men as well and just say, well, let's rely on the Bible and we can say the Bible teaches there is one God, the Bible teaches the Father is God, the Bible teaches the Son is God, the Bible teaches the Holy Spirit is God, but I just get away from that term Trinity because it's not in the Bible and I refuse to, to accept the creeds because if the creeds reflect what's in the Bible, we have the Bible, and if the creeds reflect what's not in the Bible, we don't want them.
2: Well, a little known fact, the word Trinity is not in the Uh, councils' creeds of the early church. It's not in the Apostles' Creed. It's not in the Nicene Creed. It's not in the Creed of Constantinople. Uh, It is in what's called the Athanasian Creed, but that was not produced by a council. It was produced by some unknown guy. We don't even know where he lived or when he lived. Uh, So the use of the word Trinity is not essential or necessary, but respecting the doctrine that that word happens to to refer to, uh, I would say is important. And, but in the description of the Trinity, we
0: have it described as the Son, as the Son being uh, existing uh, pre-creation, and so that is problematic in saying that the the creeds fairly represent. When we have guys like John MacArthur and and these others, Bible Answer Man, saying we don't agree with that either. Well,
2: I, I I've already given my reasons okay. for disagreeing with that view. Right. I I do want to address the point that you made about talking to Mormons. Okay. Um, It is unavoidable in the long term uh, that you're going to use language not found in the Bible. Uh, In fact, uh, we've used very few words that are in the Bible in this conversation because the Bible wasn't written in English. That's not just a, a cheap point, because in translating the Bible into various languages, you have to make adaptations. You can't just go, here's a Greek word. What's the English word that corresponds? It doesn't work that way many times. So we use words like monotheism personal relationship with Christ, and other kinds of language that are not found in the New Testament, they're not found in the Bible, there's nothing wrong with that. What I would say is this, I don't have a problem when talking with the Mormon saying, look, let's not get hung up on the the specific language of the creeds that's not in the New Testament, let's talk about the substance of what those are trying to say, let's look at what the New Testament says. We, We can talk about the theological language that was used later, later. But let's not get hung up on that, but I'm not going to reject it because I think it, it faithfully represents what the New Testament was teaching.
0: Got it. Thank you. Uh, stay here. They're going to be right. We have Jim in Las Vegas, Nevada. Jim, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, great. Hi, Sean. How are you? Doing well. How are you?
3: I'm doing good. Thanks. Hey, I just got a couple things I wanted to throw at you tonight, if you got a second.
0: Okay, Jim, go for it.
3: Okay. Well, <clears throat> you know, me and my son-in-law are a couple of I guess we're called free thinkers now. We're going to stay in the church, and, you know, our whole family is in the church and they, It serves them well. So we, we're going to take a little different approach. We're going to continue to, to go. I'm in the high priest group, and and uh, I've got the opportunity to uh, give the lesson this Sunday. So I'm going to come at them with a whole different deal. You know, I'm sure I'll get called into the bishop after I'm done and what have you just because I'm going to bring up history. But one thing that... Uh, one thing that that Joe and I came up with the other day was if, if uh, we were talking about Emma, okay? Now, I don't know about all of you out there, but, you know, my wife is the most precious thing on this planet. And, uh, you know, I think I said a long time ago that I'll never raise my voice to her ever. I'll never, uh, uh, I'll, I'll try never to even get upset at her. Just because she's so precious. Now, if Emma was Joseph's wife, you'd think that Joseph, if he's called of God, would would kind of have those same kinds of feelings for her. You know, whether she, whether she went south or she didn't go south. Uh, but what came up for for me and my son was, uh, and 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 I'm not real versed on this, but. Do you know what a son of perdition
2: is? Go ahead. I got
3: a theologian here. Do do I know what? What
2: a son of perdition is. A a son of perdition in Mormonism or in the Bible? (laughs) Well... Uh, in, in the Bible, a son I of... I guess
3: what I have learned is, isn't that when you go against the church? I mean, that's like an unforgivable sin I, or some darn I, thing. I mean,
2: yeah, I think in Mormonism, and you would know more about it, what it is in Mormonism than I would, but uh, uh, you're probably one as well. Okay, yeah, you probably I, are. There he is. I'm becoming
0: one in the Christian church.
2: <laughs> no, we're, no, we're, we're oh, a long way from that. Uh, but anyway, I, in, in, the Bible, in the Bible, in the Bible, the son of... Excuse son of me. In,
3: have, it, I mean, come on. This gal sorry, was a good lady. Not, we yeah. all know she was. There ain't anybody that can tell you anything different, but yet, you know, Brigham Young said she was probably the worst person on planet Earth. She was of the devil. I mean, there, there's those quotes out there. And and I think Joseph probably didn't treat her that well when, when, when you're thinking about, I mean, wh- where did he put this gal? He must not have had a whole lot of uh, concern for her if he took on these other wives. And so now she's a son of perdition, and now they're on the other side. Well, Okay, now what? I mean.
0: Hey, Jim, we're, we're, this, yeah. you have stumped one of the nation's great theologians. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm gonna call you later. Now, Joe, uh, to, and
3: I, Joe and I are pretty good. We come up with-
0: You guys are good. You come, up with, you come up with tough stuff. Let me uh, talk to you tomorrow and we'll go through it. All right. Thanks, my brother. Hey, brother. We're going to Brian and Sa- we're going to John in Tulsa, Oklahoma. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. John, you got to turn your TV down. All
3: uh, right, thanks. I'm I'm glad to be there. Okay, let me turn it. TV. Right
0: this is your friend. I don't know John. You're you're more out that way, right, <laughs> Rob? Hi, John.
3: Okay, I've got to turn clear off of now. Is that better? That's better. Okay. Uh, the question I've got is kind of twofold. Uh, can we pray to Jesus and the Father at different times? And uh, in uh, First John. Uh, chapter five, I believe, it is they talk about the three that agree in one. And I've read that that in the oldest manuscripts of the Greek, that that text is not in the oldest manuscript about the Trinity, the three and one, in the first John chapter five. Uh, yeah. Okay, John, we're, we're gonna we're gonna
0: I'm gonna have Rob answer that, and we're gonna let you listen through the computer that you just shut turned down. Bye bye.
2: Go, Rob. Yeah, First John 5, 7 uh, refers to the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and says that the three are one. That line was added to the epistle of John sometime after John was gone, so that's not part of the Bible. Ironically, that verse does not settle anything, because you can say one what? Uh, are they one God? Are they one in purpose, like Mormons say? Are they uh, one person in different manifestations, uh, like modalists say? It, it doesn't solve anything. So uh, we, we are not losing anything by lining out that particular verse from the Bible.
0: Okay, very good. And uh, let's go to Brian in Sacramento. Brian, you're on Heart of the Matter. Derek, what's our time? Two
3: minutes. Yes, Brian.
0: Brian, you gotta hurry, we've got two minutes.
3: All right, Sean. Do you uh, still hold by the, uh, your book that you sent to me, uh, Why, Where Mormonism Meets Biblical Christianity, on page 274 and 275, you laid out one of the best descriptions of the Trinity I've ever seen. Do you still hold all that?
0: Yeah, I do. But unfortunately, that, w- that description, which is really well received by people, uh, would not be agreed upon by most theologians. Okay. That was the fire Robert, description. Robert,
2: right? Robert, you,
0: right, I know. you
3: um, believe that that uh, Sean is not a brother in Christ
2: anymore because he he doubts the Trinity? Uh, No, I'm I'm not taking that position. I I regard Sean as a brother in Christ. Uh, I'm I'm taking the long-range view of things. I'm looking at where he's come from, which is amazing that he came out of Mormonism, has embraced the gospel of grace and God's free love and, and acceptance. I'm looking at Uh, The fact that he is obviously, by his own admission, still a work in progress. And I'm hoping to work on him a little bit more. So uh, (laughs) so I I don't. He's got his hands
3: full now. (laughs) I want to say one more thing. Rob Valka last week totally missed it when he accused you of not being a brother in Christ. Because he doesn't understand the biblical truth of justification. So I just wanted to send you and say I love you, Sean. And keep it up, brother.
0: We love you, Brian. Thanks so much. Uh, we can't take you Sean and John Monson update. Next week, please forgive us. I wanna say thank you so much for your fair treatment of me. And uh, I appreciate your intellect, your, your study. I will listen to you and we'll go forward. All right, thank you. All right, my boy. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.